Book Two, Chapter Fifteen of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. Chapter Fifteen: The Last of the Coals. The next Sunday, Robert went with Ericson to the Episcopal Chapel, and for the first time in his life, heard the epic music of the organ. It was a new starting point in his life. The worshipping instrument flooded his soul with sound, and he stooped beneath it as a bather on the shore stoops beneath the broad wave rushing up the land. But I will not linger over this portion of his history. It is enough to say that he sought the friendship of the organist, was admitted to the instrument, touched, trembled, exulted, grew dissatisfied, fastidious, despairing, gathered hope and tried again, and yet again, till at last, with constantly recurring fits of self-despite, he could not leave the grand creature alone. It became a rival even to his violin, and once before the end of March, when the organist was ill and another was not to be had, he ventured to occupy his place both at morning and evening service. Dr. Anderson kept George Moray in bed for a few days, after which he went about for a while with his arm in a sling. But the season of bearing material burdens was over for him now. Dr. Anderson had an interview with the master of the grammar school. A class was assigned to Moray, and with a delight, resting chiefly on his social approximation to Robert, which in one week elevated the whole character of his person and countenance and bearing, George Moray bent himself to the task of mental growth. Having good helpers at home, and his late developed energy turning itself entirely into the new channel, he got on admirably. As there was no other room to be had in Mrs. Fivey's house, he continued for the rest of the session to sleep upon the rug, for he would not hear of going to another house. The doctor had advised Robert to drop the nickname as much as possible, but the first time he called him Moray, Shargar threatened to cut his throat, and so between the two the name remained. I presume that by this time Dr. Anderson had made up his mind to leave his money to Robert, but thought it better to say nothing about it and let the boy mature his independence. He had him often to his house, Ericson frequently accompanied him, and as there was a good deal of original similarity between the doctor and Ericson, the latter soon felt his obligation no longer a burden. Shargar likewise, though more occasionally, made one of the party, and soon began, in his new circumstances, to develop the manners of a gentleman. I say develop, advisedly, for Shargar had a deep humanity in him, as abundantly testified by his devotion to Robert. And humanity is the body of which true manners is the skin, an ordinary manifestation. True manners are the polish which lets the internal humanity shine through, just as the polish on marble reveals its vain beauty. Many talks did the elderly man hold with the three youths, and his experience of life taught Ericson and Robert much, especially what he told them about his Brahmin friend in India. Moray, on the other hand, was chiefly interested in his tales of adventure when on service in the Indian army, or engaged in the field sports of that region so prolific in monsters. His gypsy blood and lawless childhood spent in wandering familiarity with houseless nature rendered him more responsive to these than the others, and his kindled eye and pertinent remarks raised in the doctor's mind an early question 
whether a commission in India might not be his best start in life. Between Ericson and Robert, as the former recovered his health, communication from the deeper strata of human need became less frequent. Ericson had to work hard to recover something of his leeway. Robert had to work hard that prizes might witness for him to his grandmother and Miss St. John. To the latter especially, as I think I have said before, he was anxious to show well, wiping out the blot, as he considered it, of his all but failure in the matter of a bursary. For he looked up to her as to a goddess who just came near enough to earth to be worshipped by him who dwelt upon it. The end of the session came nigh. Ericsson passed his examinations with honour. Robert gained the first Greek and the third Latin prize. The evening of the last day arrived, and on the morrow the students would be gone, some to their homes of comfort and idleness, others to hard labour in the fields, some to steady reading, perhaps to school again to prepare for the next session, and others to be tutors all the summer months, and return to the wintry city as to freedom in life. Shargar was to remain at the grammar school. That last evening Robert sat with Ericsson in his room. It was a cold night, the night of the last day of March. A bitter wind blew about the house and dropped spiky hailstones upon the skylight. The friends were to leave on the morrow, but to leave together, for they had already sent their boxes one by the carrier to Rothaden, the other by a sailing vessel to Wick, and had agreed to walk together as far as Robert's home, for he was in hopes of inducing his friend to remain for a few days if he found his grandmother agreeable to the plan. Shargar was asleep on the rug for the last time, and Robert had brought his coal scuttle into Ericsson's room to combine their scanty remains of well-saved fuel in a common glow, over which they now sat. I wonder what my granny'll say to me, said Robert. She'll be very glad to see you, whatever she may say, remarked Ericsson. She'll say, Noo, be quiet, the minute I have shaken hands with her, said Robert. Robert, returned Ericsson solemnly, if I had a grandmother to go home to, she might box my ears if she liked. I wouldn't care. You do not know what it is not to have a soul belonging to you on the face of the earth. It is so cold and so lonely. But you have a cousin, haven't you? suggested Robert. Ericsson laughed, but good-naturedly. Yes, he answered, a little man with a fishy smell, in a blue tailcoat with brass buttons, and a red and black nightcap. But, Robert ventured to hint, he might go in a kilt and top boots like Satan in my granny's copy of the Paradise Lost for anything I would care. Yes, but he's just like his looks. The first thing he'll do the next morning after I go home will be to take me into his office or shop, as he calls it, and get down his books and show me how many barrels of herring I owe him with the price of each. To do him justice, he only charges me wholesale. What'll he do that for? To urge on me the necessity of diligence and the choice of a profession, answered Ericsson with a smile of mingled sadness and irresolution. He will set forth what a loss the interest of the money is, even if I should pay the principal, and remind me that although he has stood my friend, his duty to his own family imposes limits, and he has at least a couple of thousand pounds in the country bank. I don't believe he would do anything for me but for the honor it will be to the family to have a professional man in it and yet my father was the making of him. Tell me about your father. What was he? A gentle-minded man who thought much and said little. 
He farmed the property that had been his father's own, and is now leased by my fishy cousin aforementioned. And your mother? She died just after I was born, and my father never got over it. And you have no brothers or sisters? No, not one. Thank God for your grandmother, and do all you can to please her. A silence followed during which Robert's heart swelled and heaved with devotion to Ericson, for notwithstanding his openness there was a certain sad coldness about him that restrained Robert from letting out all the tide of his love. The silence became painful, and he broke it abruptly. "'What are you going to be, Mr. Ericson?' "'I wish you could tell me, Robert. What would you have me to be? Come now.' Robert thought for a moment. "'Well, you cannot be a minister, Mr. Erickson, "'cause you do not believe in God, you know,' he said simply. "'Don't say that, Robert,' Erickson returned in a tone of pain "'with which no displeasure was mingled. "'But you are right. At best I only hope in God. "'I don't believe in him. "'I'm thinking there cannot be muckle differ "'atween hope and faith,' said Robert. "'Money a one at says they believe in God "'has unco little hope of anything from his hand, I'm thinking.' My reader may have observed a little change for the better in Robert's speech. Dr. Anderson had urged upon him the necessity of being able at last to speak English, and he had been trying to modify the antique Saxon dialect they used at Rothenden with the newer and more refined English. But even when I knew him, he would, upon occasion, especially when the subject was religion or music, fall back into the broadest Scotch. It was as if his heart could not issue freely by any other gate than that of his grandmother tongue. Fearful of having his last remark contradicted, for he had as instinctive desire that it should lie undisturbed where he had cast it in the field of Ericsson's mind, he hurried to another question. What for should na ye be a doctor? Now you'll think me a fool, Robert, if I tell you why. Far be it from me to dar think such a word, Mr. Ericsson, said Robert devoutly. Well, I'll tell you whether or not, returned Ericsson. I could, I believe, amputate a living limb with considerable coolness, but put a knife in a dead body I could not. I think I know what you mean. Then you must be a lawyer. A lawyer? Oh, Lord, said Ericsson. Why not? asked Robert, in some wonderment, for he could not imagine Ericsson acting from mere popular prejudice or fancy. Just think of spending one's life in an atmosphere of squabbles. It's all very well when one gets to be a judge and dispenses justice, but, well, it's not for me. I could not do the best for my clients, and a lawyer has nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven, only with his clients. He must be a party man. He must secure for one so often at the loss of the rest. My duty and my conscience would always be at strife. Then what will you be, Mr. Erickson? To tell the truth, I would rather be a watchmaker than anything else I know. I might make one watch that would go right, I suppose, if I lived long enough. But no one would take an apprentice of my age, so I suppose I must be a tutor, knocked about from the one house to another, patronized by ex-pupils, and smiled upon as harmless by mamas and sisters to the end of the chapter and then something of a pauper's burial, I suppose. Que sera, sera. Ericsson had sunk into one of his worst moods, but when he saw Robert looking unhappy, he changed his tone and would be, what he could not be, merry. But what's the use of talking about it, he said. Get your fiddle, man, and play the wind that shakes the barley. 
No, Mr. Erickson, answered Robert. I have no heart for the fiddle. I would rather have some poetry. Oh, poetry, returned Erickson in a tone of contempt, yet not very hearty contempt. We're gone away, Mr. Erickson, said Robert, and the Lord at we know nothing aboot alone knows whether we'll ever meet again in this place, and say... True enough, my boy, interrupted Erickson. I have no need to trouble myself about the future. I believe that is the real secret of it, after all. I shall never want a profession or anything else. What do you mean, Mr. Erickson, asked Robert in half-defined terror. I mean, my boy, that I shall not live long. I know that. Thank God. How do you know it? My father died at thirty, and my mother at six and twenty, both of the same disease. But that's not how I know it. How do you know it, then? Erickson returned no answer. He only said, Death will be better than life. One thing I don't like about it, though, is the coming of the unconsciousness. I cannot bear to lose my consciousness even in sleep. It is such a terrible thing. I suppose that's one of the reasons that we cannot be content without a god, responded Robert. It's dreadful to think even of falling asleep without someone greater and nearer than the me watching o'er it. But I'm just saying o'er again what I have read in one of your papers, Mr. Erickson. Just let me look. Venturing more than he had ever yet ventured, Robert rose and went to the cupboard where Erickson's papers lay. His friend did not check him. On the contrary, he took the papers from his hand and searched for the poem indicated. I'm not in the way of doing this sort of thing, Robert, he said. I know that, answered Robert. And Erickson read. Sleep. Oh, is it death that comes to have a foretaste of the whole? Tonight the planets and the stars will glimmer through my window bars, but will not shine upon my soul. For I shall lie as dead, though yet I am above the ground, all passionless with scarce a breath, with hands of rest and eyes of death. I shall be carried swiftly round. Or if my life should break, the idle night with doubtful gleams, through mossy arches will I go, through arches ruinous and low, and chase the true and false in dreams. Why should I fall asleep when I am still upon my bed? The moon will shine, the winds will rise, and all around and through the skies, the light clouds travel o'er my head. O oh, busy, busy things, ye mock me with your ceaseless life, for all the hidden springs will flow, and all the blades of grass will grow, when I have neither peace nor strife. And all the long night through, the restless streams will hurry by, and round the lands with endless roar, the white waves fall upon the shore, and bit by bit devour the dry. Even thus, but silently, eternity, thy tide shall flow, and side by side with every star, the long-drawn swell shall bear me far, an idle boat with none to row. My senses fail with sleep, my heart beats thick, the night is noon, and faintly, through its misty folds, I hear a drowsy clock that holds its converse with the waning moon. O solemn mystery that I should be so closely bound, with neither terror nor constraint, without a murmur of complaint, and lose myself upon such ground. Rubbish, said Erickson, as he threw down the sheets, disgusted with his own work, which so often disappoints the writer, especially if he is by any chance betrayed into reading it aloud. Do not say that, Mr. Erickson, returned Robert. You may not say that. 
ye have nae right to laugh at honest work, whether it be your own or any other body's. The poem, though. Don't call it a poem, interrupted Ericson. It's not worthy of the name. I will call it a poem, persisted Robert, for it's a poem to me, whether it may be to you. And who I know at it's a poem is just this. It opens my eye like music to something I never saw for. What is that? asked Ericson, not sorry to be persuaded that there might after all be some merit in the productions painfully despised of himself. Just this. It's only when ye did not want to fall asleep at it looks fearsome to ye. And maybe the fear of death comes in the same way. We're feared at it because we're no altogether ready for it. But when the right time comes, it'll be as natural as falling asleep when we're doing right sleepy. If there be a God we'd call our Father in heaven, I'm no thinking that he would, to so many bonny tunes, put a thought for the hinter end. I'm thinking, if there be anything in it here, you know, I'm no saying, for I did not know, we mount just believe in him, to die decent and happy, in a such strange awful fashion booted as some folk would make a religion of expecting. Ericson looked at Robert with admiration, mingled with something akin to merriment. One would think it was your grandfather holding forth, Robert, he said. How came ye to think of such things at your age? I'm thinking, answered Robert, you were not muckle older nor myself when ye took to such things, Mr. Ericson. But deed, maybe my grandfather put them in my head, for I had a heap ado with his fiddle for a while she's dead new not understanding him ericson began to question and out came the story of the violins they talked on till the last of their coals was burnt out and then they went to bed shargar had undertaken to rouse them early that they might set out on their long walk with the long day before them but robert was awake before shargar the all but soulless light of the dreary season awoke him and he rose and looked out aurora as aged now as her loved tithonus peered grey-haired and desolate over the edge of the tossing sea with hardly enough of light in her dim eyes to show the broken crests of the waves that rushed shorewards before the wind of her rising such an east wind was the right breath to issue from such a pale mouth of hopeless revelation as that which opened with dead lips across the troubled sea on the far horizon. While he gazed, the east darkened. A cloud of hail rushed against the window, and Robert retreated to his bed. But ere he had fallen asleep, Ericsson was beside him, and before he was dressed, Ericsson appeared again with his stick in his hand. They left Shargar still asleep and descended the stairs, thinking to leave the house undisturbed. But Mrs. Fivey was watching for them and insisted on their taking the breakfast she had prepared. They then set out on their journey of forty miles with half a loaf in their pockets and money enough to get bread and cheese and a bottle of the poorest ale at the far-parted roadside inns. When Shargar awoke, he wept in desolation, then crept into Robert's bed and fell fast asleep again. End. Chapter 15